0: Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. As the special crisis series within the Alpha Exchange continues, it was a pleasure to catch up with former colleague, George Goncalves. A 20-year veteran on both the buy side and sell side, George most recently led the fixed income strategy effort at Nomura Securities. Our discussion considers the post-GFC regulatory landscape that emerged in the U.S. Treasury market and how, over time, the street's capacity to bear risk was compromised even as the government's appetite to run larger deficits grew. George walks through how we got to September of 2019, when repo market disruption fired a loud warning shot that market plumbing was vulnerable to crack. The increased prominence of the relative value investor, whose strategies are short both liquidity and volatility, has figured prominently in the breathtaking explosion of volatility in the risk-free complex and the resulting role the Fed is needed to play to support market functioning. Looking forward, George sees the potential that rates are headed lower still, but given the degree of government capital directed towards the economic sudden stop, ultimately sees value in inflation-protected securities like TIPS. Thanks for listening and be safe. My guest on the Alpha Exchange today is George Goncalves. He is an independent bond strategist and a 20-year veteran on both the buy side and the sell side, was recently head of fixed income strategy at Nomura and an ex-colleague of mine from the yesteryear at Bank of America. George, it's good to reconnect. Thanks for joining us today.
1: I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me on.
0: Well, we're uh, in the midst of a crisis, an economic crisis, and an asset price meltdown as well. Lots going on in risk assets and certainly a ton going on in the risk-free asset. You've spent your career analyzing rate markets. I always try to disentangle the action in the asset price relative to the new news that the market is trying to digest, but then also the setup coming in. There are trades and positions and incentivizations. There's a regulatory structure. It'd be great if we could do a rewind and maybe kind of start in the formation of the post-crisis regulatory landscape. Of course, the crisis upended a lot of risk-taking and the mortgage side of things and was a big rewrite in terms of the regulatory landscape. was hoping you could just start with, as you kind of think back to that period in terms of the rewrite, what was that all about? What are the types of limitations that were put on dealers and market participants who take risk, what did that reshaping look like and how did it evolve over time in shaping the way people have taken risk on the treasury side?
1: So kind of harking back really post-crisis and thinking through how it evolved, I mean, I think you do have to start off considering that we're kind of ending back with more QE. I think we have to start off with the amount of QE that was done, the reliquification, the recapitalization of the banking system and how it started off slowly, we kind of got our footing again and started to understand this new world that we're heading into was going to be a world of demand on a very liquid structure of a a banking system mandated by regulation. The Dodd-Frank had so many rules implemented, there's prices still figuring out all of them. And it started off slow. We're fortunate that they got their balances reliquified the capital back in. And then over the course of the last, really the last five years or so, is when a lot of those rules start to stick and actually become more meaningful, like LCR and SLR, and started to change the nature of the business towards building up these liquidity pools and also being aware of certain key ratios and living within those environments. And quite frankly, That changed the nature of risk-taking and also warehousing ability for the street at large. And over time, as we got through and got closer to the last two or three years, the Fed did embark on trying to unwind some of that excess liquidity that was in the system, which was helping a lot of these ratios, and move that paper back into the banking system at a time where you also had an increase in debt supply coming from fiscal stimulus and the tax cuts, it really led to a perfect storm of the need for non-bank entities to step up and underwrite the bond market really on an overnight basis, really highly dependent on the repo markets as their source of funding all of these treasuries and collateral. So it started off slow, It got to a point where it became large in scale in numbers and ended up with really last year's repo madness and the frictions in uh, repo funding, dollar funding, which to be honest, are still ongoing.
0: So you mentioned these two ratios, LCR and SLR, and not to get too far into the specifics, but broadly for our listeners, can you describe what these initiatives were and are and maybe step back and just how they impact the dealer's more traditional ability to serve as a a warehouser of risk. How have those two ratios interacted with how dealers interact with the market?
1: I mean, so dealers in the banks as well. I mean, depending on the bank holding level and depending on where the dealers are, just pure investment bank or part of a commercial banking system. But the liquidity coverage ratio and stockpiling and creating the availability of 30-day liquidity access ended up creating liquidity haves and have-nots And those that were able to actually either maintain these large portfolios of liquidity preferred to have actual overnight excess reserves versus having treasuries, which should be analogous. There shouldn't really be that much of a distinction, but one of the biggest kind of gripes that people had with LCRs, like which we've kind of learned the hard way, is that when there's a time of crisis or the need to actually raise funds quickly... Yeah, treasuries will move on price and you're not going to get back par potentially. It's liquid, but you have the potential for not getting fully made whole on things. And so there was that component. The SLR impacts more the repo and the ability to have repo on your balance sheet. It just changed the ability to be a warehouser of risk and balance sheet became much more precious.
0: And of course, this has occurred during a time when Obama was fighting the aftershocks of the financial crisis the unemployment and and we ran some giant deficits and and really never looked back those deficits started to come down a little bit but as soon as trump came in they came back up quite a bit so i can imagine that some of this is set against just a lots and lots of issuance over the past 6 to 8 years how does the fiscal side what role does the fiscal side play in terms of the kind of overall balance of supply and demand for treasuries? How does the government's appetite to run larger and larger deficits figure in?
1: We became accustomed to nearly 50 to sometimes 70% of our debt being purchased by overseas actors, and we were not really geared towards a domestic kind of bond market underwritten by just US banks and levered investors and also real money from mutual funds, insurance, and pensions. They've all played a role, but the supply increase has been so massive and it's going to continue to rise from here on out. But we have the Fed now that's going to be helping out in that regard. But just purely on the private sector side, I mean, there was just only so much available room to make space for all these fixed income, primarily government markets, and credit was also growing also quickly as well. So you start to get into a kind of crowding out of available balance sheet room. And that is what really led us into September of 2019, the regulatory environment and just holding back dealers and this deluge of paper levered investors that had to be increasingly much more active in underwriting treasury auctions and off-the-run treasuries. That was the first kind of foray into what really escalated in the last month or so. But that was the kind of first test run of there's only so much capacity in the system, and they cannot just rely on the private sector to underwrite all this debt. And you would eventually have the Fed do QE, which of course now we know is in full effect.
0: Right. I'm going back all the way to LTCM in '98, and this was a blowout of one particular portfolio. But there was a lot of copycat capital in the markets as well, effectively imitating the success or what the perceived success of this giant relative value portfolio. So you had this massive swap spread widener that occurred then, the quality spread of on the run off the run blew out. Is it the case that over time this reliance on this leveraged investor category became increasingly significant and if that is the case what are the trades that folks were typically doing in that category in terms of trying to harvest some risk premium what were the common trades that were typically utilized by the leveraged investor
1: the rv community being long bonds and short futures and you see that in the price action and on how the basis blew out in this environment and with it it impacts other kind of funding type spreads as well but i think your analogy is a good one going back to long-term capital i mean there's not that the same trades were deployed but similar in vain and similar sort of consequences that once you lose access to either funding of those trades or because volatility picks up and, and bar adjustments force kind of a reduction in risk that's afforded to these strategies, you create uneconomic trades and you thought you were ARBing something that should have been compressing and it starts to widen out on you. It's really not that different than what we saw during the subprime CDOs where it only took like 3% of a move to actually knock out most of the capital that were in those structures. You know, these are high quality liquid assets that are moving around and, and they're money good. However, the actual ability to maintain those positions was based on the leverage side. So you're always short liquidity. And once you know, liquidity dries up and the actual volumes was really falling very aggressively during into the uh, oil shock when we woke up that Monday, and oil basically you know, almost got into the low twenties, and all these things created a huge vacuum for the ability to transact, and forced a massive widening out of the basis in the futures market. And we kind of always tend to think of the treasury market as like this homogeneous market. So it's a layering of markets with the on-the-runs versus the off-the-runs, and various different actors between the money markets that provide repo and dealers as well and hedge funds. And doesn't take much to upset the apple cart there. And you kind of almost make treasuries trade like credit and they shouldn't. And so that's what I think created a huge spike in, in, in overall realized vol as well as plies, which have been low for so long considering the great moderation and rates being globally low for so long for the last decade that it really caught people off guard. And that, perfect storm, I think Fed had, had to react as aggressively as it did. I think they're starting to realize that they're probably overdoing it a little bit at this point. It became a big issue that that just kind of compounded and challenged some of the market function that was people took for granted in the treasury market.
0: You mentioned the compression of rate vol as something that was in some ways complicit in the setup coming into this. And certainly folks Get worn out over time. Vol may seem cheap, but you eat the premium for enough of a period of time, and cheap isn't cheap enough, and you're frustrated in paying away precious basis points of earned return. And that really was the story post crisis. And kind of going back to our days as colleagues in the pre crisis period, the Fed had, I want to say, 500 ish basis points of room starting in and around 2007 to effectively ease down, ultimately get to zero, and stayed there for, I want to say, till 2016 was when Yellen got off zero. You can correct me on that. But what was the evolution of your role and your team's role during that period of time when QE was in full effect, forward guidance was in full effect, the curve had some slope to it, but certainly the funds rate was pinned to where it is now again. What are the types of things that you wound up looking at during that period? How are they different than the prior period when there actually was an interest rate?
1: Carry trades ruled supreme. You had that piece of the puzzle, which, yes, was brought to you by years of Fed yield compression from QEs, as well as low rates and forward guidance and all that, breaking the back of the ability for any sort of law of opposition to ever be (laughs) held for more than a a month, let alone to realize it's something over a six month window. But you also had that taking place in conjunction with global rates being super low and what Bank of Japan did, as well as ECB, by going into negative rates and, and then seeing a lot of the capital come back to the Treasury market in the form of uh, FX hedge type strategies to pick up yield in the Treasury market. All those things happened and are pretty well televised. And it was just all versions of a carry trade because rates were so low and you needed to borrow as short as possible, try to make yield out the curve or sell ball to pick up the source some premium. Those were the basic kind of tenets of what people were doing. There was obviously a lot of directional views and, and there was news along the way, but the overarching kind of environment was establishing carry trades to earn yield and in premium carry.
0: One of the precursors maybe to what we've just experienced, and correct me if I get this date wrong as well, I want to say it's October of 2014, which was a treasury upcrash in terms of price. Do I have that date right when uh, the 10-year rallied violently intraday?
1: The high-frequency kind of in 2014?
0: Yeah, I'm curious if you can just kind of bring that price action to life. And there's been a lot of electronification of markets. I see it on the equity derivative side, even credit markets, are there's a lot of electronic brokering. You never thought it would come there, but certainly a high adoption rate for high frequency trading and electronic liquidity provision in treasuries. Was that a precursor in your mind to some of the fragilities that might have been underneath the surface of the market? What was that event like for the market, the flash up crash?
1: It was eye-opener on this perception of liquidity. This is the treasury market, the most liquid asset in the world, backed up in part of the dollar reserve currency. The Fed's the biggest central bank and really the global central bank of the world. You should have much more orderly markets than what we experienced that day. I think look, it was early, early days still. I mean, understanding high-frequency trading and its role that it played. Again, the treasury did a big study and came back with that it was not just the fault of the high-frequency traders and the algos that were behind it, these air pockets that were created and I think called out and gave focus that what you see on the screen sometimes are not exactly the true depth of the markets behind it. And it only happens when it gets challenged. Otherwise, it's usually everything's properly functioning. But it's moments like that that you kind of get a wake-up call. I think a lot of things were done after that to be aware of how to you know, manage risk if things like that were to happen again. I think what we saw this time around was not just the fault of high-frequency trading. I think the macro environment and just the changing of positioning and a reassessment of the, what the outlook is going to be forced for some really big flows and trades to take place based on how the price action evolved in the last three or four weeks, it's not fair to compare it to the high-frequency environment. But that said, I mean, on a given day, from what, what's out there in the public scope of research that I've seen, 80% of daily liquidity does come from high-frequency trading in the treasury market. So if that's the case, it could exacerbate things when markets are fast-moving.
0: So going into this period, of course, the economy hit a brick wall, and so risk assets are going to sell off. There's going to be a massive flight to quality. Growth expectations, inflation expectations are going to fall off a cliff. but even coming into this, let's call it by the end of February, the S&P was still pretty much near its all-time high, and yet the rates market had started to rally. Inflation expectations were soft, especially the short part of the curve implied a couple of Fed cuts. This was well before any any sell-off in the s and want you to just talk to us about inflation or the lack thereof and- someone with your experience and having helped people manage risk through different cycles. What's going on with inflation? Is there an operative model that helps us understand the inflation shortfall? doesn't seem to be QE, (laughs) as first was a source of worry back when they launched it. Over the course of time, what have your views, how have they evolved in terms of how and why inflation comes to be?
1: So I've been, I've been in the markets about 20 plus years, and all throughout that, been a bond bull run to lower and lower rates. I do think that we're probably coming to the end. You know, was the low back when oil crashed a couple of weeks ago, and you saw a meaningful decline in 30-year rates and 10-year rates. Was that the low? I mean, I'm not sure if I'm going to call that the low yet, but we're at a point where the next obvious move has to be higher in rates it's gonna be a, in a controlled pace. I think that inflation is a risk as we look forward. We've completely um, now gotten to an environment that the acceptance of something like universal basic income, monetary theory, a fiscal type solution and higher expectations from government support and m- that many more you know, treasuries and, and fiscal stimulus down the pike, all kind of supported by the Fed. It's going to be a controlled environment. You could be the end of the bond bull market. It doesn't necessarily have to mean that we enter a bond bear market. We can just go sideways for a long time. And Japan has basically experienced that. The tricky part is where you are the reserve currency, there's going to be changes to overall global trade and supply chains in ways that we can't really still fully comprehend at this stage. So I do think that the inflation risks are mounting. But as we see in any sort of liquidity vacuum Things like tips, inflation-type strategies, once they lose liquidity, they also lose the ability to actually properly be aligned with fundamentals. And so they got caught in the downdraft like credit did, like munis did. They've since kind of rebounded a little bit. Do you think that the tips for the long haul make sense as an overall core strategy and and, and having inflation protection in some form or another? Furs are going to stay steep. That's all going to be try to rebuild some inflation premium into the markets. The challenge will be how far can it go when you have on the other side, the Fed leaning hard into it. I mean, the Fed's balance sheet could easily double, triple, and that still would be within the scope of how it compares to the Bank of Japan's experience. And so you don't necessarily want to fight the Fed on this one, especially if this is going to be an 18-month kind of rebuild or longer rebuild of the economy as we figure out would supply chains come back home to the U.S.? And it's still to be written, but inflation, both from the wage side, from the supply demand disruptions in the short run, but then retooling of the whole economy is going to result in a higher inflation spectrum. And the question is, can that be passed on through the bond market? And when will that happen?
0: The response from the Fed a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was in the nick of time, specifically in the government bond market and the degree to which it is intervening makes the height of QE actually look rather small. I mean, it's 75 billion, up to 75 billion of treasury coupon assets a day. I think it's another 50 in agency MBS. I think that pales in comparison to the Bernanke QE era. What does it say that the Fed is in the market such an active participant in the treasury market on an ongoing basis at a scale that we haven't seen before
1: well at this point they're still and i think we'll continue for some time until they get a better handle on how they're going to change their own framework and approach this has been actually something they've been working on as we speak and unfortunately this crisis really throws a huge monkey wrench into where they're going to change the list of counterparties that they face i mean primarily through the dealer network and the banking system But by the time some of this liquidity actually makes its way to those that are short liquidity, not by any fault of the dealers on their own, they have regulatory requirements and things that we discussed earlier, and also they're in the business to be profit-side, not a charity. There's frictions that get passed along the way. So you don't get a full kind of implementation of Fed liquidity. And so even though they're doing massive scale, it's almost like they have to in order to actually overcome some of the log jams that are in the system. This too will pass. I mean, I think we'll get to a point where there is we go back to more of a normal operating procedure for how the dealers and banks won't need the Fed to be as heavily involved. And they are doing this on a daily basis. The last couple of weeks bought more than they did during the early QE coming out of 2008, as well as the various QE programs after that. I don't think that they're intending to stay in this Magnitude or this approach forever. I mean, I think they're already starting to slow down the daily activity and the daily purchases. They need to make sure that the system has collateral and they also don't want to just buy up all the paper. And there's still a need for pensions and things like that to any investors to be buying treasuries outright. However, there's going to be a natural kind of handoff where they're not doing credit easing in my mind, they're doing more liquidity, market function. Once we get vols back down and markets start to kind of function on their own, this, but we're still going to be faced with massive deficits that are really basically wartime level kind of deficits to combat this health crisis and getting the economy back on track. For how long? I don't know how that's going to last, but assuming that it's get 18 to a 36-month window where you're going to see a lot of government stimulus, infrastructure potentially, as I mentioned earlier continued support for those that got displaced and disrupted by this crisis, this health crisis. All that requires some financing, and the Fed's going to be an active supporter of that. But as they kind of move away from market function and liquidity, they are, I think, going to move more towards how do they control rates. And that could very well come in the form of a yield curve control function, kind of like what the Bank of Japan does, you know, the Fed did in one shape or another back in World War II just pinning rates at a certain level, they don't necessarily have to buy the market as long as rates trade within a certain range. That's what truly ends up being the case. That's going to be an ultimate vol killer. No one's going to really, I think, try to step up and and fight the Fed if they're going to always be defending a certain key level. So it's a vol killer. And the challenges that they're going to face, I think regulators are going to have to face too. They don't want to have a repeat of what we just saw in the last 10 years, some of these strategies, both on the equity side as well as fixed income side of just trying to do yield-based enhancing strategies by selling vol, you don't want to encourage that sort of behavior. So there probably will be changes in rules on that, I think, it's my own personal view. But the Fed's going to have to move from market function liquidity to easing to keep the government funded and financed to, to be able to handle all the stimulus.
0: Right. And one of the things that's come up frequently, especially recently, is just your kind of prototypical institutional portfolio of half stock, half bond. This particular very transparent and easy to construct portfolio has experienced some superb sharp ratios over the past couple of years. I think 2017 was a three on a sharp ratio. 2018 wasn't a good year for anything, but 2019 was fantastic as well. I think approaching a three sharp ratio, just 50% S&P, 50% 10-year. And I think the concern has been, be curious what you think, the diversification benefit of a 10-year note when it's yielding 40 to 70 basis points versus when it's yielding 2%, you certainly lose a lot of the expected diversification. Benefits, Unless, of course, you're convinced that the 10-year can just keep rallying past the zero line, which has been proven to be possible for sure in other countries. What are your thoughts on where U.S. rates could conceivably go based on this shock that we've just experienced? I think we touched down intraday as low as 37 basis points in the 10-year. Obviously, Europe has gone the 10-year and Germany has gone to minus 70-plus. What do you see as possible in U.S. rates?
1: There's scope to go much lower than what we saw. I don't think that that's something that the Fed wants to necessarily encourage either. I think they would like to see a steeper curve. And so how they actually implement the yield curve control will be crucial, number one. Number two, you know, the U.S. government's going to have to issue a ton of debt as well, and how that also kind of will least preserve some sort of term premium and... I think what people got sidetracked in the last 10 years, hindsight is always 2020, using models that were calibrated to assume a full kind of return to a, to a higher level of, of rates. And therefore, there's this implied view that term premium was too low for too long. And that what we're finding out is that 10-year rates at 2%, I think a lot of people will take them if we were to get back to 2%. So I think the Fed's going to have to stay with a very low front-end rate it may maybe some sort of yield curve control around up until the one year, two year part of the curve and really keep that close to zero and hope that by doing so it disincentivizes this kind of you don't want to invert the curve at such low levels of rates and have a negative ten year. So I think that's slightly different than in the Japan European experience. I mean, I think we could get very close to twenty five to maybe even zero in the ten year, but to break through and stay under it. I mean, I think there's other better risk-reward type trades. I mean, it's still a decent amount of move from where we are here, so I would be a buyer of the tip on fixed income because we don't know the macro outlook. I'm not a really big believer of the V-shaped recovery many are expecting. The the treasury market can still do well as a a short-term tactical trade. Long-term, it's going to really make it difficult to your first point of how to use it as a diversification tool in a 60-40, 50-50 portfolio. I think it's going to really challenge investors' Kind of think about having more alternative assets. And there's a lot that we can go into that. But I think that the 60-40 portfolio is going to be uh, upended because of what just took place.
0: Well, we will leave it there, George. It was great to reconnect. I hope you and your family are okay through this challenging time. And we appreciate your insights today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to The Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time.